You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Yeah, today we're going to be in Mark 10. Uh, you can find a Bible. And you can grab that Bible and you can turn to Mark 10 and then you will be where we're going to be. Uh, Something that Colby reminded me of, Colby reminds me of all the time. Every time I see him, there's a lot of things Colby reminds me of. But this one thing in particular is uh, Colby wound up here um, many, many years ago or several years ago. This church has undergone a lot of different transformations. And several years ago, uh, we we actually made the move down here to, to reach out to some mine students and started building bridges and connections into school into the school of mines, but also um, other college students, other young people throughout the throughout the area. Um, and our first two college students, one guy's, they were Brandon and Matt, Brandon Richardson. Uh, if you remember Brandon, he's got this gigantic beard now and wears a kilt and lives in Texas. <laughs> Good thing we didn't have him very long. So, um, but, yeah, but they are great people. They're great people. Then the, the next year after that, we we're like, those were the first two. The next year after that, I was like, man, how are we going to reach out to my students this year? And then just so happens that was the year that uh, we had our, our pseudo-daughter, Lindsay, a girl who'd been with us for a long time in Duluth, and then she, she moved out here because she had some uh, some issues she had to take care of, just she needed to get away from some stuff in Chicago. And uh, she came here, and so I was like, you know, Lindsay, you can help me out. I can't get down to InterVarsity in order to invite people to Food for Thought. Why don't you go? And in the back of my mind, I was like, this is going to work perfectly. Send the attractive female to the school minds and ask them. <laughs> And you know what happened is we went from like two students to like 25 (laughs) by just sending an attractive 20-something female to invite them to something. It was amazing. And out of that crop of people was Colby. And, uh, And Colby is not an attractive female, but he kept inviting people as well. And slowly but surely, his was less effective, but he starts bringing other people here too. And this is how this works. And it's just an amazing thing. Colby reminds me of uh, some of those, some of those things. Um, what that, why that uh, pertains to this message, I'll share with you. Um, you ever been in a place where you're royally uncomfortable? Royally uncomfortable. Jake can remember one just shortly ago. <laughs> um, it's a, it's super unnerving to be in a place where you feel like you don't belong. To be in a place where you don't feel like you fit. Right? You ever, I'm sure you can think of about a dozen of these situations. Um, it's hard to pinpoint why that is. Why do you feel uncomfortable? If I asked Jake to explain why he feels uncomfortable, he'd start explaining stuff and he'd get lost in it. The School of Minds is one of those places that makes me feel uncomfortable. I will explain why. It's because, generally speaking, I rely on my personality to create commonality almost every, in any, any particular situation or any particular conversation. I'm going to use my humor and gregarious nature to create a sense of calm in order to make, have a shared experience and so we can progress in the, uh, you can progress in the conversation. I go over to the School of Minds and I use my personality and what happens? There's nothing. They're like, well, is this guy talking to me? But they don't say that. It's just all over their face. Like, And what they're still, I've learned what they're doing is having a conversation in their head with me that I'm not privy to. And it unnerves me. It's like my kryptonite. Um, there are places, many places where I don't fit. One of those is school minds, and I love going over there because it does unnerve me. One of them's funerals. I also don't fit in funerals, just so you know. I've only done about four funerals in my ministry career, and there's a reason why. I make jokes when I get nervous. 
And especially when things are tense. So if you can imagine me officiating a funeral, I will start making jokes about the deceased loved one that are... Some of, like some of the ones I make with Jesse, right? Like, that's the way that this goes. And then people are horribly offended and they start crying before we even get to the funeral part. <laughs> and I think this whole phenomenon happens as not fitting certain areas is because when we find ourselves in a situation where the culture operates just counterintuitively, counterintuitively to how we think and process, it creates this, like, tension inside of us. And that tension is really, it can unwind you. It can unwind you. Uh, today, we're going to look at um, this concept, where we belong, where we fit, where we don't fit, what makes us comfortable, what makes us uncomfortable as we read the book of Mark. And what we're going to see, we're going to, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 10, what we're going to see is you're going to see this juxtaposition, these two kind of uh, realms that are walking alongside of each other. And they're going to leave us with this, uh, this thought. They're going to they're they're leave us with this choice of which one do we want to fit in? Which one do we fit in best? And so we've been marching through the last few weeks through our series on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. What we celebrate at Christmas is Jesus taking on flesh, uh, Jesus taking on a body and and coming to be coming to be born that that he. Um, that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the nature of a servant and came to serve. And in this series, we're looking at what he said he came to do. We're looking at the purpose statements of why in the world he would do this, because that's really important. Like We need to know why he came to do this, because what he also says throughout the Gospels, in a multiplicity of ways, but one particularly in John, I'll quote, is he says, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. Right, And so this is the idea of, as this Christmas thing, the stuff we celebrate at Christmas is the celebration of why Jesus came, but it is the understanding of, because that's how God sent him, that is now how we should then live. And so the way we've been saying this is Jesus' reasons for coming become our pattern for living. And so this is why we're looking at this. And I hope you're maybe pleasantly shocked at what Jesus came to do. Uh, today we're going to look at one of Jesus' statements that is perhaps a little bit less broad than last week's where we talked about universality of truth and how truth really makes a big difference. But I think this one, even though it's a little bit more specific, is very personally challenging. Uh, today, of course, is the second week of Advent, and it's the week of peace. It's one of my favorite weeks because do you live in a world of peace? Who here lives in a world where it's totally peaceful all the time? Especially right now. This is a time in our life, this is a time in, this, in the calendar year where things get more frantic than they are generally anywhere else. And we tend to lose peace very, very quickly. Um, it also is one of those things that explains a lot of what's going on in the world. When we... Uh, you can look at the world, and just like that video, that video did an awesome job showing us that you can run around like a crazy person looking for peace all over the place, trying to squeeze peace out of every single moment of time. But what that's going to do is it's going to suck the peace right out of your life. And yet we have that standing starkly against what we're celebrating at Christmas, is that these heavenly host of angels show up and say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to all, and goodwill to all men. So we have this this tension that exists in our world, right? Like Jesus came 2,000 years ago and the angels show up and they're like, hey, guess what? Peace on earth. Right now, here it comes, right here. Yet, where do we live in? Do we live in a world that's full of peace? No. I, I, I don't see it. 
So today we get to focus on what in the world did Jesus mean? What in the world did his, does his birth mean? What is this peace on earth, goodwill towards men thing? Does it even exist? Is it just a fallacy? Is this one of the things that the Bible is just maybe stretching a little bit and reaching on? Although peace is a great concept. And in Mark chapter 10, you're going to get this, like I said, you're going to get these two realms. A realm of, um, well, let's just jump in and read it and, and then I'll explain it. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be today. And it's a wonderful chapter. A lot of fun things happen in this one. So Jesus then, this is verse 1, and we're going to read actually almost to the end. Um, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, I just love this in the ministry career. This this happens quite often. People just come up and they're like, Hey, so, I know I don't know you, but uh, you need to answer this question or I'm going to hate you. Anyway, so, verse 4, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. We're not going to just stop right there. We're going to keep going. Verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and he said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. And he took, to, he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. And Jesus started on his way. A man rose, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm, I'm making the emphasis because you should see the showy nature of this. Verse 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus again said, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. (laughs) Stupid Peter. Verse 29, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many are first will be last and the last first. 
They went on their way up to Jerusalem when Jesus, excuse me, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what he was, what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we will ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They knew, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or the left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been given, excuse me, for whom they have been prepared. When, they, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And here it is. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And there's a fascinating little end to this whole thing as well. Now I want to explain to you kind of what's happening here and and, and paint you a picture of what's going on in Jesus' world as this whole scene is unfolding. And what you're kind of getting, what you should get, is that everybody around Jesus is in this kingdom of conflict and, and a lack of peace. They're always striving and straining and trying to get ahead. And it starts off in the very first thing with this discussion of the conflict in the family. Right? The very first thing is conflict in the family. And that conflict in the family is, is a huge chunk of this, this section. But the whole passage starts off with some serious instruction about divorce and about remarriage. And what's happening here is basically men and women in Jesus' day were simply swapping spouses. Simply just like, hey, I'm tired of my wife. You have her. That's legit what was happening. And they were doing that without any provocation, without any, any necessary uh, anything. And what Jesus is talking about with a certificate of divorce here is he's talking about a legal document in which the people in, invite an elder of the community in in order to assess the marriage and go, is there any grounds for actual divorce? But they weren't doing that. They were like, well, see, see ya. You don't make my sandwich as well. That, that's, I mean... They didn't have a ton of sandwiches, but that's kind of what was going on, right? Like, you don't cook well, you don't treat me well, you don't treat me right, you don't serve me. You're out. That's what was happening. And Jesus is addressing this going, hey, you guys, this they're two or one, you guys aren't even thinking about this right. But then it moves on, right? And then there's this panel about the children, and, and the children are coming to Jesus, and the parents are going, child, go up there and go have Jesus bless you. He's pretty powerful. Let him put his hands on you. And uh, I don't even know what their thinking's going to happen. Maybe they're thinking their kids are going to glow or like not talk back for the first time ever. But what's happening is they're sending their kids, and in that culture, in that day and age, kids were supposed to be neither seen nor heard. They were not the center of attention like they are in our culture, right? So what, what in Jesus' culture, children were supposed to be gone from anywhere where there were adults. This is why when you read like Jesus, when he's 12 years old, he's at the temple, and what is he doing? Teaching, and who's he teaching? Adults. That should just blow your mind. It should blow your mind. 
But this is what's happening is they're going, no, kids need to stay away. And the disciples are freaking out going, keep your kids away, man. Have you seen? They have snot all over their face. Keep them away from Jesus. You're going to get them sick. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He makes an example out of the children and says, unless your faith is a lot like these guys, you can't get in. And then immediately this rich kid shows up. And that's what it is. Rich young ruler, right? It's the rich kid. This rich kid shows up and he's like, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, he's this big showy thing and he's trying to show off at how perfect he is. And there's a, there's a cultural mindset in the, in this day and age that the more stuff you had means the more holy you were. And he's coming in to show off going, look at all my stuff. I'm so holy. How must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes, hey, you need to go get rid of your stuff, man. And he walks away. It's not about getting rid of his stuff. It's about getting rid of the stuff that's holding on to his heart. And he, and then Jesus slows down. And this is such a beautiful part of this passage. Jesus slows down and he says, how hard it is for somebody to enter the, a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples are, it actually says, and the disciples are amazed at his words. And here's what I'm picturing, right? Jesus goes, man, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are like, huh, that's deep. <laughs> That's what I'm picturing happening now, of course. But that's actually what I'm picturing happening. Like, wow, that's some deep stuff, Jesus. And then he goes, children, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the the kingdom of God? Right? When he just got done talking about who? Children. He's referring to them as little children. And then he, he fleshes this out. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they're looking back going, man, that totally blows my mind because I think everybody who's rich is holy and entering the kingdom of God. And he goes, no, that's not the way it is. And they go, well, then who can be saved? And he goes, well, with God, all things are possible. And then he moves forward into this next section where all of a sudden Jesus is the only one talking. And, and it's as though the author kind of steps out and, and Jesus just, he's walking along. He's like, hey guys, so here's the deal. Uh, I'm about to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to get beat and I'm going to get flogged and I'm going to get killed. And then three days later, I'm going to come back. And they're not even listening because if you caught on to the next section, what are they doing? All of a sudden he's like, yeah, so I'm going to die three days later. And then James and John are like, hey, hey, Jesus, give us a really good chair in heaven. We want a really, really nice seat. So we can just sit around and watch what happens. We want to be right next to you to catch all the action. Think about what Jesus just dropped on them. He drops this huge bomb on them of like, hey, something big's about to happen. I'm going to be, you're my friends. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. This is going to be really hard. This is going to be really difficult. And what are they doing? They're dropping the ball arguing, dropping the ball, arguing about who gets the best seat in heaven. So Jesus levels these guys and He lays out what I kind of want to camp on for a little bit. He responds to the disciples laying out to James and John that they don't know what they're asking. They don't understand that in order to be seated in a place of authority, they will have to do the things that Jesus does. They will have to do the things that Jesus does. And then He lists those things. He says, you're going to have to give up your life. You're going to have to serve. You're going to have to walk away from everything. You're going to have to... This is going to cost you. This is going to cost you. And they're thinking, what do I get? And he's thinking, what do I have to give? 
He tells them they're going to be baptized with the baptism He is baptized with. They are going to suffer just like Him. They are going to die just like Him. They are going to be tortured just like Him. That is what is about to happen. And then He launches into this incredibly big truth. And I want to focus on this real quick. So this is in verse 41, 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you. And then he says, instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be saved, served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what you're seeing in this passage is there are people swirling around Jesus all the time going, what do I get? What do I get? What do I get? What do I get? Can I leave my wife and swap her for another? Can I, uh, I let's get rid of these kids because they're too, man, no, we no, kids, just keep them away so I can be comfortable. No, let's, uh, how about the rich younger ruler? He comes, he goes, I, Jesus, I, I want eternal life, but I don't want to, I don't want it to cost me anything. And then Jesus launches into this and says, You know, there's one way that this world works. And it's not so with you. Not so with you. And so he paints this picture of what we've talked about before, his upside-down kingdom, his upside-down world. Jesus has an upside-down kingdom. It works totally different than the world that is around us. Picture, if you will, that on the day that you're born, you are handed an instruction manual about this earth. It's got all kinds of wonderful charts and graphs and pictures and tutorials in it. It's got troubleshooting menus. It's got a great index. It's all laid out. And you're, you're handed this, right? The day you're born, you're handed this instruction manual. And the instruction manual tells you that what you have to do in order to get the best, in order to get the, the most out of this life is do whatever it takes to be happy and satisfied with you. Imagine, if you will, that this instruction manual tells you your job is to maximize your pleasure, to minimize your suffering, to maximize your me time, to minimize your pain, to trust only yourself, and to make friends so that you can be healthy and strong, and to go have relationships that are beneficial to you, and as soon as they're not beneficial to you, walk away from them. Imagine, if you will, that you've gotten that manual. Because here's the deal. We all did. Every single one of us did. We have an entire system that is built on something called self-actualization. You may have heard that term before, self-actualization. There's this guy in, uh, there's this guy in uh, modern, modern psychology. He's actually considered one of the fathers of modern psychology, Abraham Maslow. You would have learned this from uh, in grade school on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And Maslow's hierarchy of needs starts with things like shelter and then moves into love and all that stuff. And the, the peak of it is self-actualization. Be the best self that you possibly can be. And that he says that is the goal of all of humanity. Did I mention that he was an atheist? You didn't didn't believe that there's anything other than you. You didn't believe there's anything other than you. And so this is what we see in this in this chapter. You see everybody swirling around, being self-focused, self-motivated, self-actualized, self-identifying, self-reliant. And if we want to boil it all down to it, just being flat out self-ish. 
And then Jesus says, you know, there's a way that this kingdom works. When you get to the top, you get to say, hey, I'm on top, and the rest of you guys get to serve me because it's all about me. And then Jesus says, not so with you. Not so with you. Because in Jesus' kingdom, in Jesus' understanding, contrary to that instruction manual you got when you were a child, Jesus says, hey, I created this life. I created you. I know how this place works. And here's how this works. I want to hand you a whole new tutorial. I want to hand you a whole new manual that says, your job is not to make it to the top and say, all the rest of you guys get to serve me. Your job is to lower yourself continually again and again and again and again, saying, hey, how can I serve you? Hey, how can I help you? My family, joke. we joke about this all the time. What do I say to you guys all the time that I am? I'm a helper. helper. And every time I say, don't worry about it, Winter, I'm a helper, she goes, why do I feel like you're judging me? <laughs> because usually I'm doing something for her that she didn't do for herself, like, you know, move her laundry out of the way or something like that. Don't worry about it, Winter, I'm a helper. Right? And, and to some degree, right, like she might be right. There might be something super selfish inside of me going, watch how humble I am and how much I serve you. <laughs> right? <laughs> it, it totally is there, just so you know. It's totally there. Right? But the whole point of this thing is that this is actually what we are supposed to be characterized by in God's kingdom. If we are part of God's kingdom, if we are part of the kingdom of God, if we have moved from what Jesus says here during the rich young ruler, if we've moved from being outside of the kingdom of God to the inside of the kingdom of God, we will be characterized as people who give and serve and lay down our life as a ransom for many. Why? Because that's what Jesus came to do. That is why he was born. That's why he became a meat bag. Thank you, Justin, uh, for that a couple weeks ago. That's why he became a meat bag, is to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The problem is with our hardwiring, because something inside of us, even in our attempts to be humble, like I just laughed at with my daughter, even in our attempts to be humble, it's because I want to be bigger than she is. This is a really, really hard thing. We have two... Two concepts, two kingdoms kind of walking side by side. And what Jesus is portraying here is which one are you in? Which one are you in? Which one are you motivated by? Are you motivated by me, 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 me? Or are you motivated by how can I serve? How can I, how can I give up more? I'm not giving enough and it's driving me insane. How can I give more? How can I lay my life down more? And I think the hard part is our world tells us, our culture tells us, screams at us that the more self-actualized you are, the more peace you will have in your life. As soon as you reach it to the top, man, as soon as you get to the top and you have everybody else serving you, man, you can take vacation, you can retire, you can go away to a beach, you can do whatever you want because all the peons are left here to work for you. But those of you who have made it to uh, maybe a high standing in some of the organizations you work in, you know that it's just more and more and more stress. It's the big lie of our culture. Work harder so you can work harder. It's what it is. The real, this is the reality of our life on a daily basis. This is where faith and our life meets up. 
Which kingdom are you a part of? Have you been changed to the point where you used to run around consuming everybody for the, to fill the black hole that is you? Or has that black hole been filled by the servant, Jesus Christ, who now has changed you, recreated you, and said, now, go, empty your life out for the good of others. Empty it out. Empty it out. Empty out that bank account. Empty out that vacation saving spree you've been going on. Empty out all this stuff and do it for the good of others. Do it for the good of others. I would generally like to say that like in my own mind, I look at my life and I go, yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I spend most of my time with other people. I spend most of my time like hanging out and drinking coffee with other people. I'm doing pretty good until somebody cuts me off. And then what is the thought process? You dirty peasant, why have you cut me off on my roads that I now own? Right? Like that's what's not going on inside of my heart and inside of my mind. And I want them destroyed and I want them taken off the roads because I own them, right? Like, where are the police when you need them? They're never around to take out the people who are taking my roads away, right? Like, something goes on inside of my heart where all of a sudden I want to be king of the universe. But Jesus says, not so with you. Not so with you. On this Sunday, we get to focus on peace. How is that going to happen? How is that in the world? How is that going to happen? Is a world full of self-actualized, self-important, self-motivated people going to result in a world of peace? Just think about it philosophically, right? Is a world full of self-actualized Healthy, balanced, self-motivated, self-identifying, selfish people going to make any difference when it comes to peace. Now it's going to become little kingdom, warring against little kingdom, warring against little kingdom. But as a world of selfless, sacrificial, peacemaking, humbly loving servants going to be the thing that's going to bring peace. I think you know the answer to that question. But I want to present you today with a choice. And I want you to honestly assess yourself. I don't know where you're at. I know me. I'm all kinds of messed up, man. I'm a hot mess. It's horrible. I like to, I like to pretend how unselfish I am. I like to pretend how, uh, how giving I am. I like to portray this person who's got it all together and super spiritually strong and then all that stuff. But I know what's inside. I know the wreck that I am. I don't know where you're at. I used to say this all the time. I haven't said it enough. Here's the, be- here's the beauty of Christianity. When you assess yourself and you realize kind of how big of a schmuck you really are, like I do all the time. I look in that mirror and I go, man, that is a handsome schmuck. But as you, uh, as you self-assess and as you look at that stuff, here's the beauty of Christianity. How do you know a bird is a bird? Because it flies. It has wings and flies then they're not really a bird. Why are you a bird? Why can't you fly? Um, so, yeah, uh, they, we know a bird is a bird because it has wings and it tries to fly. How's that? Is that better? You know, it's a fi- you know a fish is a fish because it swims, right? Right? It has gills. Who said it? it has gills. Both you guys. You're like one. 
It's horrible. <laughs> How do you know a Christian is a Christian? Because it repents. That's how you know a Christian is a Christian. A Christian isn't a Christian because it's perfect. A Christian isn't a Christian because he or she is morally upright. A Christian isn't a Christian because he or she goes to church a whole bunch of times. A Christian is a Christian because they see the mess that this is and they bring it to Jesus and say, I'm, I'm a super big mess and I need your help. That is the definition of who a Christian is from front to back. And so I just want to ask you that question. Which kingdom are you in? Today might be the first day you get to start living in the upside down kingdom of Jesus Christ. Today might be the first day that you all of a sudden fit in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But here's what it takes it takes a choice to dethrone yourself and to put Jesus on the throne of your life. Saying, Jesus, you command my destiny not because you're overbearing or because you're a commander or because any of that stuff, but because you're a humble king who came to serve. And so I want to get off of my throne. I want to serve you first by getting off of my throne and then allow you to push me into the things that I know will bring peace. He is the king that will happily serve you and save you so that you can start the path of humility off right by humbling yourself over and over again in repentance. So let's pray. And let's ask that God would bring us into His kingdom. Who can be, who can be saved? Well, with God, it is possible. With God, it is possible. Jesus, we come before You, and uh, I recognize that most of the time, I am only part of my kingdom. And when people screw up my kingdom, it is not good. So I repent of that. I lay that down at Your feet. Lord, I could think to just yesterday when I'm sitting on the couch trying to finish writing a sermon and my my children and wife are living in my home and I'm like, man, why are you not worshiping me and being quiet? And I repent of that. But it's ridiculous. It gets so deep into my heart and into my soul. And I pray for my friends here the same way, Lord. I know that it gets deep into our heart and to our soul, that it's all about us. And I pray that we would just lay that down and make it about you, taking steps of faith like we saw Colby and Jake do today, stepping outside of our comfort zone, saying it's not about me and it's not about staying comfortable, but it's about following you and doing what is right and doing what I've been asked to do. Lord, I pray that we would start that off right by humbly bowing ourselves, our hearts and our knees to you, dethroning ourselves and putting you on the throne. Lord, that we would finally trust the God of all peace to bring us into peace by serving people, serving one another, serving the world around us. Lord, we commit ourselves to you and I ask that you would do business in the lives of my friends here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed.